Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. This is not equal application. There are certain neighborhoods we don't really care if we traumatize. And I think you're right. I think it puts the police at risk. I think it puts the neighbors at risk. All for what? To make sure the drugs don't get flushed, right? This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. The home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we are going to talk about the economy. That's what everyone is talking about. And we specifically have received a number of messages from listeners asking us, where does the money come from when Congress passes trillion-dollar spending packages? Is this a wise approach? What are the consequences going to be? So we're going to talk about all of that as much as we can today, given how little any of us knows about what the economic future looks like. But before we do, we want to cover a couple of stories that we also know have been on listeners' mind, beginning with the killing of Breonna Taylor here in Kentucky. Many of you have messaged us about this, and so we wanted to spend some time on it today. For those of you who don't know, Brianna Taylor was a 26-year-old EMT and an aspiring nurse. And on March 13th, she was in her apartment in bed with her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. Shortly before 1 a.m., Louisville police officers in plain clothes knocked on her apartment door with a battering ram. Kenneth did not realize that they were police officers, and he called 911 and Brianna's mother to say that someone was breaking in. He got his gun, which he is legally registered to own, 
and fired once. An officer was struck in the leg. The other officers fired back 22 times. Brianna was shot at least eight times and died. And some of the bullets even flew into a neighboring residence where there was a five-year-old and a pregnant mother. Police were investigating a man named Jamarcus Glover and his associate who were suspected of selling drugs more than 10 miles away. Glover had already been apprehended earlier in the day. The police received a no-knock search warrant for Brianna's apartment because Glover had a package delivered there. Now, this is where things get even more troubling in terms of how that no-knock warrant was obtained because the postal inspector in Louisville said that his office did not verify packages of interest addressed to Glover going to Brianna's apartment, and typically they would have. Glover had at one time dated Brianna, and police believed that he was using her home to keep drugs or stash money or otherwise receive mail. There were no drugs in the apartment. The police department says that the officers did knock despite having a no-knock warrant, that they knocked loudly and announced their presence as police officers. Four neighbors contradicted that claim, and also it was the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. So now a 26-year-old woman, Brianna Taylor, is dead. Her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, has been charged with attempted murder of a police officer. Despite the fact that Kentucky has a stand-your-ground law, so Walker seems to have been within his legal rights to shoot when he believed there were intruders in the apartment. Brianna's mother, Tamika Palmer, says Brianna had been working in emergency rooms at two hospitals helping with the coronavirus response. And I don't know why this line stuck out to me so much in all that I read about this case, but she said, I was more concerned for her washing her hands than her dying at home. Much like the... Ahmed Arbery case, I think it's really important to focus on the racist policies instead of the actions of the individual officers that put Breonna Taylor in the position that she was put in, put her life in danger, and then ultimately led to her tragic death. This is not the first case of people innocent of any crimes, being either killed or traumatized by this type of warrant. And, you know, I think that the process through which these warrants are obtained can lead to not just tragedies, but again, just sort of the the ongoing racial traumatization of certain populations. And so I think it's just when they're, when the When the results are so horrific, it's always tempting to go down the road of like, this is a one-off or this is about an individual who has racist ideas or whatever. And that's just not the case. I think that not just the policies of the warrant, but particularly the policies that lead white men to fire when they're under attack and walk away after killing innocent black people, but a black man put in prison when he definitely felt under attack is something we need to absolutely re-examine in this country. Because, you know, I was talking to a friend who was looking at the history of, I don't even know, she was reading a historical book of fiction and she was saying that the lynchings and the, the, particularly the early 20th century, she was like, they're just so horrific. It's like, they're almost as traumatic as like the murder of an infant because there's this 
real terror involved of you did nothing wrong and also you were targeted because of something you can't control. Just the combination of these two things, I think it is really difficult to ever take in the impact of that and how it's not just the family, it's not just the local community, but, you know, the entire country and particularly black and brown people who live in this and have to watch these stories and relive this terror and absorb it into their own everyday lives and decisions is, it's just horrific. No-knock warrants enforceable entries, so situations where police officers either have been given permission by the court not to announce their presence before entering a space or where they have tried to announce and not been allowed entry and go ahead and let themselves in. The consequences of those are so predictable that it's disgusting. Mm -hmm. I talked about this on Monday's Nightly Nuance on Patreon, how we got this under Supreme Court rulings and what some of the consequences have been. But in this country, civilians have 400 times the firearms that law enforcement possesses. And so many of our states have stand your ground laws that allow you to use lethal force if somebody comes into your home. What do we think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. We This is a situation where the police lawfully, under a warrant that a judge had issued, now, unwisely, and those are terrible policies. I don't think no-knock warrants should exist at all. And I know there are people who disagree with me, and I respect that disagreement. I just look at the facts of what has happened, and I cannot imagine a situation where the evidence to be obtained through a no-knock warrant when there is no ongoing crime that endangers someone's life in progress, I can't imagine when evidence is worth someone's life. I think that's a really—stop right there, because I think that's a really good point to emphasize. I think it becomes, well, then you're taking away the ability for police to just enter and and protect lives. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not saying if you get rid of no-knock warrants, police can never enter a building without knocking. If there's a crime in process or people's lives are in danger, that's a totally different thing. Warrants are to procure evidence. I just think, like, that's a really, really good point you should emphasize. If Brianna Taylor, let's say that she had been guilty. She wasn't. But let's say that she had been receiving mail for Glover at her apartment Is it worth a dead woman, a man charged with attempted murder of a police officer and a police officer being shot in the leg to get that? Of course Mm -hmm. it's not. I can't imagine a situation. And that's where so much of this comes up. Drug cases. We do this all the time in drug cases and it is dangerous. So you have the police officers going in doing what they believe is lawful because a judge told them it was. And you have Mm -hmm. a person asleep in bed doing what he or she believes is lawful, grabbing a firearm and standing their ground because the state law told them they could. And what do we think is going to happen when you have deadly force on both sides of that equation and everyone acting within what they reasonably believe is the scope of their rights? Why would we ever send police officers into a situation like this in the middle of the night in plain clothes? There is this situation is not 
the Black Lives Matter movement versus the Blue Lives Matter movement, this was awful to absolutely everybody. Mm-hmm. And it is not new. It is not new that we set no. up that controversy. It is not new that we have. And and you are right. It is much more often black and brown people dead at the end of these. And it's it's so predictable that we are being reckless by not addressing it. And that's why, you know, I appreciate what the governor said about making sure we get to the bottom of what happened here. But our legislature in Kentucky needs to act. We should seriously curb, if not eliminate, the circumstances under which you can obtain a no-knock warrant in this state. It is outrageous. Well, and for what it's worth, it's <laughs> there are stories where they just get the wrong address and they just totally traumatize people. Because they have these no-knock warrants and they're entering in the middle of the night and just human beings make mistakes and they're traumatized people. I remember there was a story a while back where they shot all this guy's dogs right in front of him. Like, this is not a good system, like you said. And it's not because we're trying to keep people safe. It's because we're trying to procure evidence. And are we really weighing the risks? But I think, you know, as in many cases, the risks are being filtered through racist policy agendas and assumptions, right? I think that these procedures and policies were either put in place or stay in place because they affect different neighborhoods differently, right? This is not equal application. This is there are certain neighborhoods we don't really care if we traumatize, And I think you're right. I think it puts the police at risk. I think it puts the neighbors at risk. I think it puts all for what? To make sure the drugs don't get flushed, right? If everybody's alive at the end of it, let the drugs be flushed. That's where I am on Mm -hmm. this. I just, I I cannot understand the thinking that, that any of this risk is worth the possible reward. Well, speaking of risk and reward, we have some real calculations going in the Trump administration about the risk of purging people, particularly inspector generals, the risk of anyone stopping them in Congress or otherwise, and the reward of having only loyalists as enforcers of the rule of law or any sort of accountability at all within the administration. And so for our compliments this week, we want to continue to hold up Any remaining inspector generals who still have their job, good for you. The whistleblower within the Department of Health and Human Services, Rick Bright, who recently testified before Congress, and just talk a little bit about the people attempting to enforce any transparency and accountability within the Trump administration. And the range of what people in inspector general positions work on is enormous. And these firings illustrate that. You know, Steve Linick in the State Department is believed to have been fired because he had opened an investigation into whether Mike Pompeo and his wife were using department personnel for personal errands, Um, dog walking, dry cleaning, picking up, that kind of thing. Well, and I heard read reports that she went with him when the government was shut down on trips. So it was like partial shutdown and she's out traveling to the Middle East with Mike Pompeo. And then, you know, you have all the way to Rick Bright, who says, like, we were arguing about the proper way to deal with the COVID-19 response. I mean, it's just an enormous range of issues, ranging from the relatively mundane in terms of just 
basic ethics to things that really impact our public health, our national security. And so I just want to always be holding out the fact that there are people within the federal government who disagree with firing people like this. There are people Mm -hmm. who are still trying to do this work. There are people who are still trying to impose transparency and accountability. They are swimming upstream, but they are doing it every single day. We had some comments on a post about the EPA this morning, um, and I totally understand where people are coming from being disappointed with EPA leadership decisions right now. There are so many people working at EPA, though, that aren't that leadership, that are doing Mm -hmm. their very best and care deeply about protecting the environment. So I just want to make sure we're always thinking about those folks who've dedicated their careers to developing the expertise to do government work well. Next up, we are going to talk about the economy, the passage of the HEROES Act in the House of Representatives, and where all this money's coming from and what it means. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. 
And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So we've been getting the same question, which is, I see all these trillion dollar rescue packages coming out of Congress. We have a couple phases already signed by the president. And we have another phase recently passed by the House, which is most likely not going to be signed by the president. But anyway, we have all these packages coming out of Congress and we keep getting the same question, which is, Where's all this money going to come from? Yeah, and I think that that becomes an even harder question when you start to think about the fact that we're not the only country in the world having to do that. And so this the global money supply is implicated, disturbed by enlarging because of coronavirus. And I think that there are a million complex answers to this question. The straightforward one is... We have to remember that money is not fundamentally a natural resource. (laughs) It is something Mm -hmm. that we have created. And so there are times when we create more. And that's just sort of the long and short of it. And sometimes creating more has painful consequences like very high inflation, national security consequences, in the form of concern about how much debt is held by foreign investors, because that's what we do, right? We create more by saying, okay, we have U.S. Treasury bonds to sell, and they have different terms, and people in the United States can buy those bonds, and the government can move them from one balance sheet to another, and foreign investors buy them. And so there's a concern over the long haul. Will people continue to have full faith in the credit worthiness of the United States such that they keep buying and holding these bonds. And I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know the alternative to creating more money right now. I think one of the big reasons that this is becoming such an important issue is we're having a big discussion about state and local governments. If you have state and local governments that depend on employment taxes, payroll taxes, if you have state and local governments that depend on what we call heads and beds taxes in Paducah, where people pay taxes as tourists, if you just have service taxes, sales taxes, they're all plummeting under an economic lockdown. At the same time that state and local governments are going to have to spend more for contract tracers and health department resources, school resources, all these things. And so the problem is state and local governments can't do what we were just talking about. They can't just print more money. And so one of the big, I think, price tag debates in Congress is the Democratic Party wants to provide billions of dollars and resources to state and local governments, and the Republican Party is pushing back on that. To me, that's a big issue. I mean, I think that the Postal Service and individual relief and the payment protection program, they're all important. But it's one thing if people are getting laid off 
as offices close and then they'll reopen. But if you're having to lay off from really dependable work with state and local governments because they can't make payroll because the money is not there, they're having to cut services when we're trying to get out of an economic lockdown and revive our economy. To me, that should that could have really, really terrible consequences. I will be transparent and say that this $3 trillion HEROES Act that the House passed, I have serious problems with. And I agree with most of the priorities expressed in it. I just hate doing it in this rolled up $3 trillion package that everybody knows. It's like a a bill that is never intended to become a law. And I don't think we have time for that kind of signaling in this climate. So I think it makes sense sequentially to do the next relief package focused on two priorities, additional relief to individual humans in the form of another round of those $1,200 plus checks and the state and local relief, because all of the best public health advice seems to recognize that from here, we're going to have to take a pretty localized approach to how much things can be opened, how much restrictions can be relaxed. And some of that depends on the number of cases, the mortality rate, health system supply in those areas. So knowing that, it seems to me that what you would really want if you're a member of Congress is to get those state and local governments propped up to do the work that they need Mm -hmm. to do to allow the rest of the economy to get humming again. And your state governments and the and local governments are going to be able to see which industries in my state really drive things forward here. I mean, I would much rather see those billions of dollars funneled into states to decide where to spend than on corporate bailouts at the national level, because then you could have a state saying, you know, Florida's approach has to be different than Kentucky's because we don't have Disney World, you know, and you're mm-hmm. going to prioritize those funds differently. And you should based on who's employed by what and what really drives your state budget. And so I agree with you that that is a critical priority. And the idea that that might be tied to some kind of liability waiver for corporations like Mitch McConnell wants to do, that doesn't make any sense to me. If the if no. the bill was about funneling more money to corporate interests, then maybe you talk about liability related to that. But the thrust of this bill, $875 billion of the $3 trillion, is for state and local governments. And I think that is the appropriate next priority. So I want to go back a little bit to this idea of like, we'll just print more money. What's the big deal? (laughs) Uh, So this became really, I think, more popular with the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. And it's the idea of modern monetary theory. You might have been or you might be a little familiar about this if you were a Bernie follower or if you're just a modern economic theory nerd. I'm not, but I was interested in this. And I listened um, to a couple podcasts with Stephanie Kelton, who's a big proponent of this theory, and I think worked for the Bernie campaign, or didn't advise the Bernie campaign. And I'll be honest, like, it really appeals to me. It makes a lot of sense. One of the first things they talk about is, you know, we've been warning and living under this, well, we're just going to have these huge budget deficits and won't it be the end of the world since the 80s? And it does not have seem to have been the end of the world. Like, we just keep ballooning and ballooning and ballooning, and nothing happens. Now, that's not enough to, for me to be like, oh, sure, nothing bad's happened, so nothing bad will ever happen. But what made a lot of sense to me is she talked about that the federal government, particularly the United States federal government, which I think is a little bit different when we talk about the global COVID response, because we are the global currency. 
And that gives us a certain amount of economic power, wiggle room, whatever you call it. And she talked about, you know, it's we talk about the federal budget like it's our household budget, like we will collect the taxes and a big pile of money and then we'll just pass it out and spend it. And that is in no way, shape or form how the federal budget works. We do not collect money in a big federal government savings account and then write checks. How she described it is we control the flow of money in the global currency. And so we print money. That puts money into the economy. When we collect taxes, we take money out of the economy. And the concern with inflation is something you really have to watch, but you don't really have to be as concerned with that until you have 100% employment, which the advocates of modern monetary theory think should be the goal, and that the government should spend on projects and infrastructure and basically just print money until we get to 100% employment, which obviously right now we are very, very far away from. And I just think that the way she shifted the thinking, because I do think we talk about it like it's this like savings account and checkbook, and it's it's just not. And that is a silly metaphor for something as big as the United States federal government that controls the global currency. And I think there is a part of it that makes sense to me that if we are controlling the inflow and the outflow, then the federal government printing money in a moment like this, concerns about deficit or even debt default, which, you know, the modern monetary people think basically you can't default if you're the current if you're the global currency. If the if the debt is under your currency, then you can't default, right? Because you would just print more. I don't know. Listen, I'm not an economist and I can't take you through the intricacies of modern monetary theory. But I will say that there is a certain aspect of it that makes sense. And I think if you look at um, the United States history in particular, when we had real disasters or real economic inflection points like the Great Depression or the early 80s or the Great Recession, then modern monetary theory starts to make a lot of sense. So it's just an interesting time to be talking about this because you don't know what the rules are anymore. Mm hmm. You don't know on the other side of this whether we still will be the global currency authority. And I'm using that really. I, I struggle with how to frame that where it's accurate. I don't know on the other side of this if the United States will still have such a dominant role in the global economy. Especially when you think about how ineffective our COVID-19 response has been compared to other countries. Do we look like a superpower right now? not by any objective metric. We just don't. And that's really hard. In terms of our military might, we're still a superpower. But if you look at other measurements, I'm not sure that we are. And that's not where I want to be. And so there's a part of me that says, well, yes, this is the moment to really spend the money to shore up those areas where we're lacking, to shore up in healthcare, certainly to shore up in testing, to make sure that our states have what they need, to make sure that the standard of living is more equally high across the board. Uh, but I, I just don't know. I mean, the future seems really uncertain to me. And, and as I've said before, I don't think it's true. What bothers me about modern monetary theory is, is just sort of the, well, there's no consequence of, of printing money under current. And I don't think that's where every scholar that espouses that theory is. But but sort of the undercurrent of there's really no downside. 
I think there is going to be a consequence of deciding to spend trillions of dollars. I also think the consequence of not spending trillions of dollars right now is worse. Are we spending all this money as effectively as we could be? Probably not. I mean, the results would say no. It's, it does seem to be the best lever that our Congress knows how to operate. And that's why I would like to see, if we're going to do a $3 trillion package, I would like to see even more of it than $875 billion funneled in the state and local government direction, given where we are today. Well, I mean, I think that it is important when you're talking about, I mean, it's just hard, right? They're not totally different, the idea that we are a global superpower and that we are the global currency. They are linked but they are separate. I mean, I think that we could suffer under a loss of sort of global leadership, which we are most certainly doing right now. And we would still maintain our position as the the sort of global reserve currency. There's a there's an idea that's like it's like a what's it called? The global currency reset that we could lose our position as the reserve currency. If we're to leverage, if people basically lose trust in our ability to repay our debts. But first of all, we're not the only country out there leveraged to the hilt. I know Japan's debt outstrips its GDP. And also, again, how are we going to default if we can print the money? <laughs> you know, like if you're an emerging economy and you your debt is in dollars and you can't print dollars. Yeah, that's a problem. You can default. But our debt is in dollars and we print the dollars. So there's an aspect of that that I think is hard to imagine us losing. I mean, you know, OPEC's in dollars. All these global contracts are set in dollars, and we control the dollars. And so, you know, I think that not an expert in macroeconomics or economics of any time, but I think it's it's not just that we are a global leader. It's that we're the reserve currency. That's a very powerful position to be in. Well, and I think it would be fair to say that both parties right now view us as a modern monetary theory country because there is nobody arguing Mm -hmm. to spend less money. And the reason that our deficits have ballooned so much is because we have not been able to agree on competing priorities. And so it's always everything and the kitchen sink. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of that money gets spread across programming so varied that it becomes less effective. You know, I think the the next iteration of being fiscally conservative, if that probably isn't even a term we should use anymore, right? But the next iteration <laughs> of being really focused on how much money we're spending should be tied to effectiveness of that money. What is the return to the American taxpayer on this dollar? Yeah, because, I like that. Because we have just, we're doing so many different things that we're doing them poorly. The post office is a great example of this. The post office is so unbelievably effective at what it does. And if you look at the math of the post office, it mostly makes money. It makes more money than yeah. almost anything else the government does. It's amazing. And Congress because we have just stretched our dollar so thin over all these different programs, has saddled the post office with a huge burden in terms of, in advance, funding pension and health expenses for retirees that most federal programs are not shouldering. 
So the post office needs an infusion of cash right now, for sure. There's a lot less mail being sent than there usually is. But more than that short-term infusion of cash, the Postal Service just needs some long-term relief in the form of forgiving its debt to the United States government, just being like, hey, the Postal Service is part of us. Let's not hold debt against it. And -hmm. let's not have it be responsible for pre-funding these obligations. If you could do a restructure of the Postal Service's obligations to the government of which it is part, then you would have a really viable federal program that I think most of the American public agrees ought to continue in close to its current form for a very, very long time. The same cannot be said of a a huge number of government programs, not that they all need to make money, but that I think what we need is to focus in on what can we do most effectively. And there is not a scenario where you do that without taking a hard look at what we spend on military equipment. That's a really difficult conversation. Uh, It is a conversation, in my view, made harder by COVID-19 because we have no idea what the national security scene looks like on the other side of this. We do know that during all of this taking place, China is busy, like, building up its presence in the South China Sea. Things, you know, moves like that and mask diplomacy and all the things happening in that part of the world, you know, make me nervous. And I'm not a person who wants to sit back and say, well, let's just let our military technology and weaponry go down the tubes. But I think you do have to start looking at the effectiveness of the dollar spent. What is the return to the taxpayer on this dollar? And I think that a lot of our funding into the military starts to look pretty bad under the cost-benefit analysis if you go down that road. I mean, I think the problem is... Your assumption is that there could be a return on investment and the deficit hawks and the sort of, I would argue, hypocritical small government people have been very successful in perpetuating a narrative that there is never a return on investment when it comes to government spending, that all government spending is wasteful, that no government spending returns any investment to the taxpayer. I think that they have been incredibly successful at that. People think that. There's no trust. There's no idea that some money spent is good, that some money invested pays off. Those stories don't ever make it to the headlines. It's the like, whatever, $2,500 toilet seats or those, you know, those are the ones that get the play and get built into people's minds as the government never spends money well, which is just not true. And it's like we can't we're not going to be able to get out of this without government investment. I think what you're real like what I've think, been thinking a lot about since COVID-19 is how particularly like privileged middle-class people don't understand how much of the 20th century was the government like buffeting them from the winds of change. You know, like you can see it when they're not here with something like COVID-19. Like how much our government in the past has spent a lot of money absorbing the consequences of global changes so that we didn't feel them. That takes money. It takes money to do that. And we don't always do it well, and we don't always do it fairly. And certainly the benefits do not play out equally across all groups. But they do spend money doing that, making sure all areas of country see a benefit, making sure that some technologies get funded and researched even when there's not a private market incentive. Like all that stuff happens and it matters and it really had an effect, but it didn't it didn't rise to the top as far as the story of government spending. And I think the story of government spending became it's all bad, it's all waste, it's there's never a benefit. And that I think is what we're looking at right now with this 
pandemic where people do not trust the government to spend money and try to get them out of it. You know, even though I think some of these programs have been helpful. I mean, we got a listener that was like, why are you so down on the PPP? I got money. It really helped my business. And let me be clear. We got a check from the government that I'm very happy to get. And my husband's firm got a check from the PPP that they really needed. But it's so easy to complain about the, you know, even here on this podcast where we really try to be nuanced, to complain about the money returned from the big corporations and the because there is so much corruption within this administration. It's just it's hard. It's hard to be fair to say some of it is good and some of it is wasteful. And how do we sort that out amongst ourselves? Yeah. And to be fair on my point about the military, it is hard to quantify the number of terrorist events that haven't happened because Mm -hmm. we have people on the ground in places that most Americans could never find on a map. You know, we have thwarted issues that could have been very deadly for United States citizens and for other global citizens. And so um, I do think that it's difficult to do a good cost-benefit analysis as just an ordinary citizen of any of these programs. I think that effort is worthwhile, though, especially from our policymakers. And that's why I would like to see more standalone bills so that we can have that discussion. Like the Postal Service, to me, is a great example of, of this. Like, come to the American people and say, on its own, we're doing a bill about the Postal Service. You all use the mail. You know what this means, right? Here's what this is about. Here's why we're doing it. Here are the issues that we're trying to address. I think that's particularly important now that we have a new postmaster general who seems to be a political appointee in the purest and kind of worst sense of that word, right? Let's clarify what Congress expects of the Postal Service. Let's set a set a course for the Postal Service going into the next era. I feel like Americans can listen and hang with that if we will be trusted to do it. It is so much easier to argue that everything is an enormous waste when you're talking about $3 trillion rolled up together. I appreciate your positivity. Let me rain on your parade. Every time you do a standalone bill, that is an expenditure of political capital. That is one more opportunity for Facebook misinformation. I mean, I I love that you trust Americans, but right now I'm going to be honest with you, watching what we're going through, I'm not sure I trust us to have a really good, reasonable conversation about government spending when we can't have a reasonable conversation about face masks because of the fear mongering and the misinformation and the political opportunism um, at any moment. And so if you take everything by itself and you and you take it to the public for a conversation, that's just one more massive expenditure of political capital that can be exploited by people like Mitch McConnell. You know, like there is this, there's a certain amount of like, I think, congressional work, particularly budgetary stuff. No one's going to like me to say this. And I know it sounds conflicting when I was just talking about corruption, but like it needs to happen behind closed doors. Because when it becomes a public conversation, then, you know, this is how we lost so many really great things from like healthcare reform, because once it goes out there and it has to be a soundbite, it can't be a conversation, right? It has to be a soundbite. It has to be a commercial. It has to be a Facebook meme. It has to be uh, something short and quippy and easy to understand. And this stuff isn't. 
And I think that that like there is an aspect of me that's like, I don't know if taking this to the to I don't know how we have a public conversation, which I do think is valuable. I think it's not that I obviously I value conversation is what we do. I don't know how to have conversations about something as important as the Postal Service without it turning into a Facebook meme war that is filled with lies and fear and bullshit. We have that anyway. So we're going to have that whether we do good governance or not. I think about the American public the way I think about most kids. Like, if you want them to act like adults, you have to treat them like adults. And we're not being treated like adults right now. And I also think Congress ought to work hard enough. You know, the the counter to this is do more bills and you can't take the one bill and make it a million sound bites. So do more work and let us figure out. It is so easy to smear a package that rolls all these things together. And truly, some of what's in this bill, I think, could be accomplished. Like, let's just go through some of the priorities of this bill. So it's the 875 for state and local governments, 500 to states, 375 for local governments. Then you have $175 billion for testing and other health-related expenses. I think most people would be on board with that. I also think you could just put more money into the states for states to buy the testing and tracing capacities that they need. Same thing on housing assistance. Let states do that. The Postal Service, I think you do separately. Tribal relief, I put right in the category of that money to state and local governments. That's what tribes are. They are sovereign entities within the United States, right? So do all of that in one package. That makes sense to me. Small businesses, separate program. Election security and preparation, that's the states again. Broadband issues, separate program. That's a that's an infrastructure issue. The public loves to talk about infrastructure. We never see any action on it. I mean, I get I get it. I am so frustrated by the mask conversation. I read a lot about Breonna Taylor and those no-knock warrants at, on the same day that I read a Wall Street Journal piece about all of the ways that people are being violent with each other about wearing masks in public or not. So my confidence in the public is not at an all-time high. <laughs> but I would like this to get better in, instead of just being in a perpetual race to the bottom and not being sure if the bottom exists anymore or where the bottom is. And in my mind, especially around this conversation about debt and deficits and the economy, you can tell from the questions that we get, and I think our listeners are a particularly spectacular slice of the American public, but you can Mm -hmm. tell people want to understand this. People want to make reasonable decisions. I think most people agree that we should be a mixed economy, that we should have socialist programs, that we should have capitalist programs. And I don't know how we educate everybody that that's what we are today and that most of the hot button issues are about which direction we want to go with with respect to a particular sector of our economy without just trying to talk about that more. My only concern with the idea of let's put all these priorities in the state and local government. I mean, I'm not sure I trust Brian Kemp or Ron DeSantis to take money and spend it on testing. I certainly don't trust Brian Kemp with taking money and putting it towards election security. So it's like tying the money and just giving it to the states and letting them decide doesn't always work out either. It's not like you can, it's not all states are created equal. Nothing always works out. 
But I feel like there's greater accountability for Brian Kemp in Georgia and Ron DeSantis in Florida and Andy Bashir in Kentucky and Andrew Cuomo in New York, everybody. There's greater accountability for that within the state than there is for this program. You know, the chair of the committee that's supposed to oversee the PPP still hasn't been appointed. 30 days later, we still don't have a chair of the committee that's supposed to be watching how those funds are spent. So trust is not high anywhere. Where can you get the greatest accountability? To me, it's putting it in these these smaller localities and letting the chips fall, you know, and sometimes the chips are going to fall in a horrible direction. But then you have to ask, in my mind, what part of the federal government is best equipped to deal with that? So maybe it's less the legislature sets all these priorities that funnel across the United States as they do and more that they put money into those states. And if the money is not spent well, then you ask whether some kind of investigation is appropriate and whether it's a criminal investigation or a civil investigation or just a watchdog where the federal government is giving the voters of whatever state information about how those funds have been spent. You know, we have other tools that we can bring to that problem. So in summary, print the money, give it to the states. I mean, I think that's our compromise position. Is that correct? <laughs> print Sounds the money, to me. give it to the states. Because we don't know what else to do. I wish that I had a solution that didn't involve printing money around COVID-19. But I just don't know what I don't know what the alternative is. I'm real comfortable printing money COVID-19 or none. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? I'm like deep in home projects because I'm never leaving my home, apparently, for the rest of the year. So I might as well do some home improvement projects. I'm going to post pictures. I um, re-decorated Felix's room and Amos's room. Didn't like buy all new furniture or anything, but did paint and hung up some new art from Etsy and really had fun. Their rooms had kind of been afterthoughts when we first moved in. Probably the entire upstairs was a little bit of an afterthought. So I redid those. And then since we're not going to Europe, obviously, I'm going to redo my master bathroom. And I'm really psyched about that. So I went and picked out all the... Actually, let me just be clear about that. I am not psyched about the process. I hate this process. I like re... I like like a good, easy... Repaint the walls, buy a new bookshelf. That's like put up a decal. That's the extent of what I did in Amos's room. Beautiful results. The picking tile and fixtures, and I loathe that process. I know you guys built your house. I don't know how anybody ever builds a house and has to pick all that stuff. I get such decision fatigue and decision paralysis. I'm excited about the final product, but I do find that entire process very stressful. Well, I think that's exciting. Are you going to share before and after photos? Oh, yeah, I do need to. I will do before and after photos of the boys' bedrooms. But that reminds me, I probably should take a really good before photo of the bathroom before we rip out my 1994 jacuzzi tub that we could all, literally, everyone who listens to Pantsy Politics could go swimming in this tub. It's Why did they think they needed such big jacuzzi tubs in the 90s? Like, how many people did they think were going to be getting in my master bath? So is that the biggest problem that you want to solve with your master bathroom or is there something else that you're like, really, this change is really going to make my life Yeah, better? it's like a big, nice bathroom, but like a huge portion of it is taken up with tubs. And I like bathtubs, but like I like baths a lot, but it's not even a pleasant bath to get into because it's so big. And then the shower is tiny and it they didn't put a fan over it. And so we get like mildew on the walls and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a couple, couple functional things. And of course, the 1995 I mean, it's actually kind of swooped back around because some of my tiles are like millennial pink. <laughs> well, I think that's very exciting. And I'm looking forward to seeing all of the progress. I, I've seen pictures of the boys' rooms. They look so cute. Um, I don't know what I'm thinking about, honestly. I kind of struggled this weekend. I feel like a sense of real melancholy right now that I can't put my finger on. We did start watching The Great on Hulu. Ooh, I hear it's good. 
Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not my normal fare. It's very crude for me. Did you watch The Favorite? No. Mm-mm. Oh yeah, it was real. It was real. It was some. It was brilliant. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. I mean, it's not that I'm like a big parade, but I just you know would prefer my TV to be something that if someone walked in, I wouldn't be embarrassed about what was on my screen. So it's very crude, but it's funny, and I really like Elle Fanning, who plays Catherine the Great. I loved her in Maleficent. And it's fun to see her in a really different role than when she was being Aurora. And it kind of makes me really angry on behalf of all women ever, uh, but in a way that's balanced with enough humor and ridiculousness and interesting, beautiful clothes, somewhat historically accurate yeah. information. <laughs> I read an article that was like, it's not, his- it's not historically accurate, but it's good. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just um, I'm glad that Chad suggested that we watch it because it's something real different. And I think anywhere you can find something that feels real different right now is helpful. Well, let me tell you, when I was in high school, there was, I think it was made for TV. I think, it, yeah, I think it was a mini series. It was called Young Catherine with Julia Ormond. Did you ever see it? 1991. No. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It like started my kind of life. Because her story is fascinating that she came as this. I think she was like 14 when she came from Prussia to Russia and married this guy who was completely a jerk and then basically took over the throne and ruled for all that time. I mean, Catherine the Great story is fantastic. And this particular miniseries has always been a favorite of mine. It's also got Vanessa Redgrave as the Empress Elizabeth and Mark Frankel, who I don't remember ever seeing anything else, but he was like her lover. Oh, he was the sexiest. It's really good. I don't know if it's anywhere streaming, but I loved that miniseries. I might have to find it. I really loved AP European History and everything that swept up. Like, she spends a lot of time in... in the great talking about just enlightenment ideas and um you know she she's like wanting the other women at court to talk to her about Rousseau and they're like we like to throw these balls across the yard <laughs> and then and then <laughs> someone brings them back to us and we throw them again <laughs> she's just like being a woman who's excited about a new concept of justice and purpose um surrounded by folks who can't read it's it's interesting to watch it's really kind of fun my favorite line so far has been She's complaining to her servant about Peter, the emperor, and she says, and of course, he's he's married to an imbecile. And the servant said, it's never happened to a woman before. (laughs) (laughs) So are you giving up on Mrs. America? Are you not going to watch it anymore? I'm going to go back to it. I just, oh, it just makes me very tense. I'm like waking up with my jaw hurting every morning. Like, my legs are super tight when I do yoga. I'm just tension city right now, so I'm looking for tension relief in my entertainment right now. I feel you. Well, we hope that you have come here and gotten some questions answered and some thoughts provoked and maybe a little tension release. I don't know, I'm sure a discussion about modern monetary theory ever released anybody's tension. But listen, you never know. You guys are a pretty unique crowd. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears on Wednesday over at The Nuanced Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsu Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Productions. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music.
Our show is listener supported. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Martha Branitsky, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Jared Minson, Allison Luzader, Janice Elliott, Barry Kaufman, and Sarah Ralph. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.